Welcome to our ongoing series sponsored by Catholic Church Reform International. I'm your moderator, Rini Reed. Our guest today is Nantando Hadebe, a lay woman theologian from South Africa. Her doctoral dissertation at St. Augustine was dedicated to a Trinitarian theological response to gender challenges in the context of HIV AIDS in South Africa. Nintendo is a member of the Circle of Concerned African Women Theologians and one of the founding members of the Catholic Women Speak Network. Nintendo, great to have you on the show. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, being invited and thank you, uh, dear Rene. I know that one of your concerns is um, largely about women and the role of women in society and in the church. Despite the theme of the Synod on the Family, those gathered did not engage with the work of women theologians to have for many years been writing on issues of marriage, family life, sexuality, human relationships. The Synod of Bishops on the Family, that is an all male, supposedly celibate group of men, had the power to exclude the work of women theologians and the vast diversity of Catholic women's lives by completely ignoring any reference to these sources in their deliberations and decisions. This must have been frustrating for you. Yes, it was. Um, and, you know, and it doesn't make sense because when you think of it on a very basic level, all of those lay, um, you know, bishops and cardinals came from the bodies of women, just on a basic level. <laughs> a fact hard to deny. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and, and yet, not, you know, there seems to be like a blind spot, not recognizes that those bodies that carried them for nine months, breastfed them and looked after them in their most vulnerable, are the bodies that need to be included in, in everything that the church does. And, and I think the disconnect uh, that happens between, you know, when they move away from their homes and ignore those that brought them light, I think it's what, again, affects the theology and makes it, you know, so abstract. Um, to exclude women is, is for me, to, and talking about family, uh, just is such a huge disconnect uh, on every level. So what do you think we women need to do to get our voices heard, especially on topics as important as these are to us? I think Catholic Women Speak, uh, uh, you know, initiative, I think, is to be commended uh, that they uh, brought the voices and stories of women in a book, that they presented it to the cardinals at the Synod. So that way is an entry point for women. Um, and if they continue not to listen to women, then women can, we can raise our voices and begin to have a parallel platform where we can actually talk about exactly the same issues. And I think that's what happened uh, at the Synod, that women had a parallel uh, discussion going on to talk about these issues um, and to keep raising our voices until it becomes impossible to ignore those voices. And, and we know that, and history is on our side, that when a small group of committed 
uh, women continue to raise their voices. Think of any movement, you know, like movements about um, like that little girl on climate change. You know, she raised her voice and now she's speaking in the UN and the leaders have to listen to her. And I think women, this is the time to amplify our voices and to keep talking until they can no longer not listen to us. I'm so proud of that young woman from Sweden for what she did. But let me ask you, did the Catholic Women's Network get any kind of response from the Cardinals when you sent them the book? No, not really. There were some who, you know, because amongst the cardinals, there are some that are more progressive than others. And so you will, you, from those that are more progressive, uh, you'll find that they'll be more open uh, to what is being said, but they're a minority. But I think it's the first step uh, to put the books out there. And if they choose not to listen, we simply come up with another strategy. And the whole thing is to keep building up the momentum uh, so that we are not silent, we keep speaking, we keep pushing, we keep, um, you know, being in the public eye until we normalize the women's voices so that when they are talking there without women's voices, it will seem as if they are doing something which they already are abnormal. <laughs> I know in contemporary South Africa, the promotion of equal rights for women has created conflicts with those who argue that such rights violate religious beliefs and cultural traditions. How do you respond to this? Um, we're very fortunate that the constitution um, is, a, is, a, is a constitution that is rights-based. Not only equal rights for women, but equal rights for all citizens, including uh, LGTBI, including all those who have been marginalized. And so, and, and, and so for, for us, it becomes very interesting that the church was part of the struggle uh, for equality, but now when it comes to women's rights, uh, there's always um, a, 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 a kind of conflict. But what is encouraging now, um, particularly you know, in the last statement, I think of one of the, the bishops, is that the, the equality of women, particularly in a context of gender-based violence, becomes something that the church can no longer um, not pay attention to. Um, and so the voices of, of, of women outside of the churches and even within the churches is rising uh, because women's equality, women's dignity, women created in the image of God, all of those are coming together to state that, you know, it's no longer something, an opinion of the church to say, oh, we are, we are choosing to ignore women's rights. We are seeing more and more. Uh, a kind of uh, gathering around the constitution to say women's rights have to be upheld. I have seen the church often on the wrong side of issues. At the time of apartheid, I know some Christian churches openly supported the system, even justifying apartheid practices as in compliance with the Bible. Yes. Do these kind of behaviors of the past still exist today as obstacles in the life of Christianity in South Africa? Is that still going on? But um, I think what was interesting is that that um, ideology or those beliefs that you're describing uh, that were uh, particularly uh, propagated by the Dutch Reformed Church, they met at uh, the Synod in Rustenburg and they made an apology and they acknowledged that this theology that they thought was correct was actually wrong. 
So they made an apology to say that they've been following a false theology and they asked for forgiveness, uh, which is really tremendous uh, of them, for them to actually admit uh, that the theology that they thought was correct in oppressing uh, non-white persons is actually not representative of the message in the Bible. So an apology was made um, in that regard. And so I think that is one of the things that has helped to be able to push forward the democratic agenda. How beautiful. I'm really glad to hear that. It speaks well of the church in South Africa. I think another area where the church has been inappropriately focused of the nine systems in the human body, it seems that the church has been singly focused to a large degree on one system only, and that's the reproductive health. I know Pope Francis has spoken out on encouraging the church to come to a place of putting more emphasis on love, compassion, and forgiveness, and less, so mu- less on so much as thou shalt not. What's your take on this? Um, I think, you know, the, the sort of like the overemphasis on sexual ethics um, has been something that is um, unhealthy uh, because it assumes that human, it reduces human beings uh, to their sexuality instead of taking the totality of human life. Um, and so we find, as I was saying, that in Africa at the moment, the leading causes of death are actually lifestyle. They're actually dietary issues. Many Africans are suffering from diabetics, cholesterol, high blood pressure. Um, And so those are issues that can, you know, that we need to be looking at healthy living. And also the whole cost of healthy living and the GMOs, those are the issues that we need to be focusing on. Um, And so we find that there is no encyclical uh, equivalent uh, to Humana Vitae that talks about sexuality, that talks about diet, that talks about other aspects of people's lives. And so I think the church in the, in the modern era needs to understand that human beings do not live in the bedroom. Human beings are not occupied by only sexuality. Particularly in the African context, there are issues of diet, there's starvation. There was a, st- a statistic to say that over 42,000 uh, children die every month because of starvation. And so the bigger issues need to occupy the church more than just focusing on sexual uh, ethics. They are, you know, life is bigger than that. And we need to lead the way to say we are interested in the totality of human life, not just in one aspect. Absolutely. I think there's so many of us who would like to see both the government and the church get out of the bedroom and leave those issues to the personal conscience of the individual or the couple. But do you see that kind of change coming in the church? Is there any movement to move off of that issue and open up to the issues you're talking about? Um, I think, you know, I think uh, Lajauto C., I think, made the effort to say, let's look at the environment. And I think from Ladauto C, we need to push for healthy living, healthy environmental spaces, healthy homes, um, you know, a clean energy. And I think we need to push that conversation further and further 
because those issues that were raised in terms of climate change and in terms of uh, clean, recyclable, renewable energy are the key issues at the moment that are facing African communities and um, the use of land, uh, the, the sort of food security. Those are issues. And I think uh, we need to take Ladauto Sea beyond uh, the typical environmental issues to issues of life and death, to issues of hunger. You know, I was so interested, there's a, an agricultural college in Zambia, which, which has a five-day course, which they call uh, uh, Never Hungry Again, because they teach villagers how to plant healthy food in an organic way, how to develop um, natural pesticides, so that at no point uh, is the family out of food. So, they, so, so those are the issues that we need to be focusing on and pushing forward. And I think that is the way we need to be going. I have to hand it to young people that the way they are expressing their Christianity and their values is largely through this whole issue of climate justice. They yes. are speaking up. They are coming out of the woodwork and really trying to address the issue. I'm, I'm proud of them for doing that. Oh, me so, too. Let's come continue with the subject about women. You've pointed out that without women, there would be no church in Africa since women comprise about 85 to 90% of the laity. Yet their voices and their issues are not on the agenda of the institutional church. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church is one of the few institutions not promoting full equality of women. And you see, you, you've, I've heard you say that this creates a two-world system for women. What do you mean by that, a two-world system? Yes, what I mean by that is that when a woman steps out into the secular world, uh, they hear messages uh, from government, you know, about the equality they hear about programs that are promoting uh, the education of women. And even in parliament that you hear that, um, you know, Africa has got the highest representation of women in parliament. Uh, the nation of Rwanda has got 65% of the members of parliament being women. So they step out of their homes and it's a world where the woman's voices is encouraged in every way. The girl child is encouraged to study science and women are encouraged to participate in politics. And then they step into the church and then they start being told that, you know, leadership is only for males. They start being told about, you know, the roles that they can do, what they cannot do and do and to be constricted, you know, to be defined as mothers, uh, which is part of a woman's identity. But you have a world that is so pro-women, so wanting to empower women in every way. And then you have a theology that wants to contain women, that excludes women, like, um, Right now, even in the uh, Amazon, uh, Amazonian Synod, the women participants are not going to vote. Whereas in all democratic countries, everybody has a vote. So you find in the church is operating in another world system where only males can vote. In a democratic country, everybody votes. Women can vote. Women can even advocate to be the president. Whereas in the church, there are roles that women are excluded from. So you find yourself caught in two worlds. Here's a democratic world that is pushing the equality of women. And then you step into a church and your, 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 your participation is circumscribed. So it means that you are trying to balance two worlds. 
That's what I mean. And you know, in my country, supposedly a very forward moving country, women have only had the right to vote for not even a hundred years. Yeah. We only got that right in 1920. So we are only gradually evolving. Let's take a look at the underlying theological reasons for why there's such drastic differences between the traditionalists who want to hold on to the way things always were and the progressives who want to see an evolving church to be a reflection of sign of the times. Francis received huge criticism over his encyclical Amoris Laetitiae, the joy of love. Remember the dubia, the four cardinals who denounced Francis when he came out with mm -hmm. this encyclical? Well, all he did, it seems to me, was follow the pastoral tradition that dates back to the first Christians of applying mercy to achieve justice. So I've heard you point out that over the past 2000 years, scholars have fluctuated between the two types of theology, the classical and the contextual. Explain what the difference is and which one you uphold. Yes, um, that is a, a distinction that Bevans makes, uh, which tries to help us to understand what, uh, way, what is the source of the trajectories uh, within the church where some people want to stick uh, to a tradition and they don't even realize the contextual nature of the Bible itself. You know, many people think that the, uh, the Bible, the New Testament, was downloaded from heaven. They don't realize that it was a byproduct of human beings existing in a particular culture, responding to the questions of that particular culture. So it evolves. Otherwise, if there was just, if it was straightforward, why would we need four Gospels? Why would we need that? The, 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 the there are even more that got, that got to, made, to be made Gnostic Gospels. So there are even more than four. Yes, four absolutely. that have been approved. Yes, absolutely. In terms of looking at the contextual way uh, in which they were engaging the life of Jesus. They started off with their communities, with their lived experiences, the experiences of people, and they were able to engage. And time and time again, you know, the, the, our, our, our theology has to evolve because you find that sometimes the theology is based on the science of that time, the understanding of the human body of that time. But science has changed. And things have already changed, you know. So it means that we have to evolve with the knowledge. We know the story of Galilee, that there was a belief that the world was flat, and yet he was able to bring new knowledge. And so this is what we are saying, is that we are in um, a world in which knowledge keeps changing. And if we don't want to receive uh, the truth, we believe as Catholics that all truth is from God. And so we need to evolve with the, with, the, with the changing times and begin to address those issues so that we, the, the gospel becomes contemporary. And it's very interesting because one of my programs is you know, going through the Bible and we were looking at 2 Corinthians today uh, where we saw how uh, Paul received a backlash uh, from the church in Corinth uh, because he was advocating change and they started to question his authority. They started to question everything uh, because he was saying, we've got to evolve. Um, and, and, and I think we need to, to appreciate uh, that we are constantly engaging with the lived realities of people in the 21st century. 
Um, and that is, if the gospel cannot speak to people in the 21st century in the same way as it spoke to people in the first century, then it means that it, it has lost its power. The reason it was powerful in the first century is that it spoke to those people in their frameworks and in their understanding. And now we need uh, to be able to address issues that are contemporary um, fearlessly. You know, we, we, we actually, if God needs to be like protected and this, no, I think um, our perception of theology is too small. Um, we should be living exciting lives to say, you know, how do we make the love of Jesus relevant in this context? And with the questions of climate change, with the questions of migration, with the questions of violence against women, we should never be afraid to engage the truth of our faith with contemporary realities. It's hard for me to understand how anyone can object to our theology being based contextually on the science, the scientific knowledge of that time. I remember when I was getting my theology degree way back, um, Thomistic theology, I was taught, was conceived of the need for seven sacraments to govern the spiritual world that would parallel the seven planets that were known to them and govern the material world. But you can imagine the consternation that went on among traditional theologians when an eighth and a ninth planet were discovered in our solar system. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how on earth, how can yes. they justify that theology? Yeah. How can they yeah. do it? Yeah. That, that's, that's what we, you know, that's what, that's what happens um, that when we fail uh, to, to, to engage with reality, uh, then what happens is that slowly we become like a ghetto we become more and more detached from the world and we just become some, you know, some practice in a little corner, whereas the, the truth is so dynamic. Uh, the, the principles of, let's say, even social Catholic teaching, the human dignity uh, can be expressed in any context. Um, and, and, and I think instead of being excited and, and open uh, to the new ways in which we can express our faith, as we see in the Tao Sea or in the joy of love and keep exploring that. Uh, we want to go back into a, a small, tiny um, a, a place and hold on, not realizing that even the things that you're holding on are contextual. I think if we just look at the reality of the way church doctrine has developed and been reinterpreted and changed by various councils of bishops over the years, yeah. We can't deny that there have been significant changes. Let's, let's look at just a few. Take uh, ecumenism, for example. Remember when ecumenism, by, pronounced by the Council of Florence, was uh, outside the church, there is no salvation. Mm -hmm. And yet by the time we reached the Vatican II, we realized that uh, all those justified by faith through baptism are incorporated into Christ. That came out yeah. of the decree on humanism. Or maybe how about primacy of conscience? Mm -hmm. It's so varied over, over the years from the faithful being required to conform to the magisterium teachings of the church to the human person sees and recognizes the demands of the divine law through personal conscience which came yeah. out of the Declaration of Religious Freedom. So that was a significant change. Or I can remember when the, the, we were dispensed from eating meat on all Fridays 
and they reduced it simply to not eating meat during the Lenten time. My sweet grandmother, I can remember her saying, the Pope can go to hell if he wants to, if he's going to eat meat on Friday, but this has been a mortal sin all my life. I cannot do it, and I will not do it. And maybe, maybe one final example, there was a huge, almost bitter debate where the council ended up rejecting the old dichotomy between primary and secondary ends of marriage. That was defined by Pius XI back in 1930. And instead, along came Gaudi Mitzvah that said conjugal love is at the core of marriage, which means the act of love is a means by which the couple could express their love for one another. Can you help me understand why is it so difficult for traditionalists who want to accept no change not to be able to accept that some kind of evolution must happen for the church to be alive. Yeah, it's, it, it is really difficult to understand. And um, I think one person pointed out the whole idea of fear, uh, the fear of change, uh, the fear that when you start uh, changing, uh, everything else will change. But the reality, as somebody said, the only constant is change. Um, and, 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 and I think that fear... And sometimes um, uh, it can be also a lack of knowledge uh, that the very things that we are thinking are solid were actually, are actually contextual. Uh, they were developed in a particular context to respond um, to the needs of that time. Um, and so they give an example of how we grow and we develop and to see it as a continuity. It's the same like when a baby is, when, it, when somebody is a baby, you spoon feed them. Uh, and then there's a time where they can feed themselves. That's the natural thing. Uh, th there's a time where you bath them and you change their nappies. And there's a time in which they take responsibility. So growth um, is something that we need to understand more, that we develop just as our biological uh, bodies develop, just as how we develop from being ad from children to being adulthood, even in terms of knowledge. You know, we can accept everything. Like a child, you just tell them, you know, don't do this, do that, because that's how they can understand. But as they grow, they, they're able to engage and change and develop. And, and so the natural uh, way of being is to be able to evolve in our knowledge. Um, and, and, and certain things um, um, really stay, you know, it's, they're afraid that things will change, but certain things stay the same, but they are contextualized so that they can apply uh, to the needs of the people at that time. Um, so, 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 so even when we look at, for example, the, the Laudato Si', uh, Pope Francis critiqued a former theology that was based on a conquest of the earth and said, we misunderstood um, dominion as conquest and exploitation, but it means stewardship. So you see that we even grow in our, in our theology when we recognize our faults in that process. And that should not threaten us because that's how it is in life. That's how it is in experience. I know for myself, maybe I'm an oddity, that I have learned from many mistakes that I've made and I've grown and I continue to grow. Um, and it hasn't created any fear because the more we grow, the more we open to change and evolving. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's difficult to, to know the dynamics of fe feeling that one needs to stay in one place to be secure. For those who are resistant to Francis' encyclical, Amoris Laetitia, 
how can it offer a path for the church to be attentive to the dynamics of marriage and the family and family life in the contemporary world, but still at the same time remain deeply rooted in the gospel message? Um, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, when we understand that um, everything that we do is an expression um, of our love for God and our love for the neighbor, you know, Jesus was asked, summarize the entire teachings of the Bible. And he said, the summary is love, to love God um, and to love your neighbor. Um, And so even when we come now to um, issues of marriage, um, marriage needs to be redefined in a way that abuse is not part of it. That the the abuse or the degradation of another person is not part of it. Uh, And we see that if we just uh, define marriage without looking at the quality of relationships, looking at the the way in which uh, it's it's an environment of flourishing rather than an environment of violence, that is a it's it's a place in which leadership or or lack of leadership is is egalitarian and it's modeled after the servant leadership of Christ, which which is sacrificial. Um, and so, and, and so the the abuse that we are experiencing in marriages, and the also the sexual violation of children uh, that is happening, is telling us that this institution needs to be thought out completely, um, so that it becomes it fulfills its 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 um, mandate to be a place in which you can find God. It should really be that simple, where you find God present where you find people flourishing. Um, and so the quality of the relationship should be an integral part of defining what marriage is. Where there is abuse, there is no marriage. Mantendo, thank you so much for being on our show today. And I invite our audience to send a voice message letting me know questions that are on your mind. Thanks to all. No, thank you. Thank you very much.